Hello and welcome back to the Dirt Talk Podcast, episode 76. Today, we have a friend of the show, David Cutler. Um, he has listened religiously since the beginning, apparently. And more importantly, he has a really interesting um uh, his really interesting background in construction and engineering. And we haven't talked a whole lot about engineering on the podcast so far. So Alex said, hey, how about we get David on a Dirt Talk episode? And I said, absolutely, that sounds great. So we talk engineering. We talk um, how to make the field work well with engineering. We talk about just big construction companies in general, great conversation. So without further ado, enjoy this episode number 76 with Mr. David Cutler. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty excited to have you on. Alex sent me a little bit, your, your bio that you wrote out and uh, it very, very helpful. Thank you, Aaron. I, I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. I've, uh, I feel like I know you in some ways, just from you know some of the previous podcasts and uh, what I've read online. Hopefully, mo- hopefully most of it's true. Um, uh, and well, uh, you know, you know surprised. how those online things are. You know? it, it, it's very easy to to make make yourself look a lot better than you actually are in real life. Uh, but that, that's actually um, one of the things I'm I'm self conscious about is I hope when people and in and this might sound egotistical, but it's like some people know me and I don't know them nowadays is how I'll put it. And I just hope that when they meet me in person, they're like, okay, the same idiot I've been listening to on the internet and watching, watching on the internet. That's, that's my goal. And if it's inconsistent, then I have some work to do, but, um, we're, we're, I'm super excited to have you on board because like Alex said, just before we started, Recording, you are first and foremost a big Dirt Talk fan, one of our one of our few uh, loyal listeners. I'd like to think I'm uh, one of the six at least. Um, <laughs> you are yeah. one of the six, yeah. and, and I, I'm very proud. It made my day when I heard that I was an official friend of the Dirt Talk podcast. When you answered one of my initial questions, I came you home, are. played that for my kids, and everything. You know, I, I knew I had made it at that point. Uh, now, to be fair, it's a very low bar, so I, hey, I, I don't sure want it to go to your head. I'm sure low bars are good, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's I, I aim for the low bars. They're easy to jump over. Um, so, yeah. So, first and foremost, big Dirt Talk fan. You know, you're, you're behind our missions. We're really excited to have you on board. But what I'm, I'm really excited to talk about is you are David Cutler, comma, P.E., that is correct. I am a registered professional engineer in the state of Pennsylvania, um, but I like to take it a little bit further and say that I'm a practical engineer. And, I like that. Uh, I think one of the things that spurred me to throw my name into the into the hat to uh, come on and talk to you, uh, and I'm probably going to butcher Nick's last name when I try to say it, but uh, Nick uh, is a Bezitz, the guy that's uh, a welder from the West Coast. Yeah, uh, Bazadis, I think. Bazadis, okay, yeah. yeah. Was, sorry, Nick. Um, yeah. But uh, when he was kind of leaning into engineers a little bit. And uh, so I, I took took that a little bit personally, um, just because I like to think that I'm a practical engineer in addition to having my credentials. So Well, engineers are the redheaded stepchild of, I mean, for lack of a better term, the construction industry, I feel like. 
they are the scapegoat of every single problem that happens in the field. And uh, I think a lot of that's because people misunderstand what engineers do. It goes both ways. I think the field misunderstands the complexity of engineering. And then the engineers misunderstand the complexity of actually building things in the real world with all the unknowns associated with that. So I think it's like, it's on both sides of the fence where the problem I think happens there. Yeah. And and don't get me wrong, Aaron, I have complete respect for the folks that can start with a blank piece of paper and come up with plans for, you know, a subdivision, a freeway interchange, a bridge. I mean, to be able to start with that blank piece of paper and provide me a set of plans to build something from, that's an amazing talent. And, you know, frankly, we wouldn't have the things we have today if those those people weren't around. Um, What I like to think of myself is I come into kind of the second and third phase of the whole process. So somebody starts with a blank piece of paper, they design what needs to be done. Um, In my role as an estimator now, I do my best to figure out what it's going to cost to build that and win the job so that my guys in the field um, can go build it. Uh, And I've gone... I haven't done a whole lot of design work. I've done estimating, I've done project management, and I've done some construction management. But I, I really enjoy taking the or the challenge of taking what that first team has designed and then trying to build it for what the second team has said it can be done for or 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 less expensive. Obviously, we'd like to to find ways to make things happen more efficiently and uh, you know put a little bit more in the bank where we can. Yeah, it's it's a whole side of construction that most people so so in the field you start at the end of engineering essentially because you get the plan set and that is and sure there's engineering, you know, uh, throughout the project and maybe it's, you know, a design build or or some kind some type of alternative delivery project, but most if a foreman or superintendent's coming in, they're at the end of the engineering process. So they they really don't see anything that happens as far as how did they figure out how this flow line is supposed to work they just say okay this is the this is the what the sewer line looks like i'm going to put it in the ground as such and if it doesn't match up in the real world compared to the plans i'm going to swear at whoever's name is on this damn stamp in the quarter of the plans because that's their fault those idiots well, and you know, in all honesty, Aaron, one of the best things I or things I enjoy about this business the most is when I can get with those guys ahead of time, and we can find those problems ahead of time, mm-hmm. and use that practical knowledge of the guys in the field that have been building it for twenty years to go back to the engineer and say, "Hey, you know, we see this is what this is what you have, but what if we did this?" and you know, sometimes they'll come back and say, well, we looked at that, but we couldn't because of X, Y, Z. Other times they say, yeah, that's a really good idea. And um, those are the people I really like to work with is not only the guys on the field that can look at it with a completely different perspective and say, well, you know, you you don't need to be that deep there. You could just do a drop manhole. And when you can go back to an engineer and, you know, they will listen to what you're saying and put the pride of ownership away and say, yeah, they that is a better way of doing it. You know, that's when it all works better for everybody. And, and ultimately, it's better for our clients. Everybody wins when that happens. The, the unfortunate thing is it doesn't happen all that often or as much as it should. And I think ego is largely the enemy there. 
Um, people in the field are very prideful. They're very proud about how they build things. Engineers, they're a, it, it's just, a, I feel like both groups uh, speak somewhat of a different language and it takes, you have to put your ego aside and somewhat meet the other party where they are to get anything accomplished. And so the engineers that are saying, you know, hey, okay, yeah, I have the engineering degree. Yeah, it is my stamp on this piece of paper, but maybe I don't know the best way to do this. Maybe this superintendent that's been doing this exact same thing for 25 years might might actually figure out how to do this a little bit better than I can. So I need to talk to him. And then on the other side of the th- uh, other side of the fence is, you know, the people out in the field or the estimators or whoever's working on the actual building of the project, having the understanding of, hey, maybe we should just talk to the engineers about this because I don't... It just doesn't, something doesn't look right here. And I don't think it was an intentional error, but, or maybe we found out some new information. Maybe, hey, awesome design, but there's a gas line right there. It it didn't show up on, on the as-built or whatever, but we just found out that, yep, there's definitely a gas line there. So what do you think about this instead? It's, yeah, it's just coming together, putting ego aside a lot of amazing things happen, especially in this world. And and our our general superintendent, um, good friend of mine that I've I've known for about fifteen years now, um, Mike Newnham is is excellent at that. You know, he he can get with those engineers um, and talk through things, or you know, he, he can explain things back to me. And you know, he's a relatively young guy um, compared to me, but um, you know, he he can you know, he's got a lot of experience and when I can harness that and take it back to a client or take it to an engineer and say, Hey, we, what, what about doing, th- doing it this way? You know, that's huge. And, and he actually helps a lot of these design engineers out, um, with that practical experience and that boots on the ground, look at it from the dirt level. And, um, you know, you, you can't beat having those kinds of relationships. Would you say, I think I talked to Eric Selman about this too, from an estimating perspective, it, <laughs> Would you would you agree that it would be good for engineers to spend time out in the field, more time out in the field, actually learning how to build things? Absolutely, Aaron. I mean that that's one of the things I think that helps me be a better estimator and, and a better construction engineer, a better project manager, is that you know I I've been moving dirt for almost fifty years and I haven't turned fifty yet. Um, you know, I, I, what's the, the song? I, I got my first truck when I was three, you know, drove a hundred thousand yeah. miles on my knees. Well, I mean, I, my, my buddy, Ted, Ted and I, we used to put, uh, um, water pipes in the, or storm sewer in the sandbox with, uh, drinking straws and, uh, margarine cups. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, we, we dug miles of, of, uh, trench, you know, before we were 10, we, we, we joked that, um, we were the kids that had to put cutting edges on their, uh, on their Tonka loaders because we, you know, we wore them out in the sandbox. And, um, you know, a, as I got older, I, I, I was very blessed to have a, an uncle that, uh, is, was a, a one man show, you know, 580 and a little, uh, case dozer and a, a six wheeler and a tag along trailer. And I, I got to work with him. Um, started plowing snow. I'm, I'm one of those crazy guys that likes to watch snow removal videos and on, online. And, um, so I actually got some seat time, uh, between the dozer and the backhoe and such. And, um, indirectly it's how I have the job I have today. Again, one of, one of the owners of the company I work for, um, has a snow removal business and I go out and I plow snow and, um, you know, so I have a feel for what the equipment can do. Um, you know, I, I'm very involved with the boy scouts 
and it's not unusual for me to have a piece of equipment dropped off on a Friday night and do a project around the camp. And so I'm, I'm not afraid to pull, pull levers. Um, I am not an operator though. And yeah. you know, it's, it's always entertaining when people come up and say, Oh, you do, you, you do nice work. I said, you should see the professionals. I said, I'm just mm-hmm. a hack. Um, pilot controls are a wonderful thing. If you, if you put somebody in a machine, you can, you can look really good, but it's, it, it, it's, I'm nothing compared to the guys that do it for a living. No, I've, I've always wondered who actually watches those snow plowing videos, like, uh, Tom Gardaki, you know, dirt ninja in the winter, he'll be posting his like hour long snow plowing videos of him and his loader plowing parking lots. And I just look at him like, I, not for me, but there's a lot of views on this damn thing. So some, somebody out there is watching it and that's, I guess that's you, huh? Well, I'm, I'm one of them. I, I always used to think that, uh, you know, w- once I retired, you know, got, had a couple million dollars in the bank, I was going to uh, set my dad up and, and myself up with uh, a couple of uh, nice IT-28s with, you know, power angle plows. And we were just going to have a, a pro bono snow plowing thing for like churches and stuff like that. And, nice. you know, and, and that was before I even knew what a metal plus, uh, you know, six or what is it? The eight, eight twenty four plow was or something like that. Those things are just insane as a, as a snow, snow removal junkie. So. Well, I, I grew up in Arizona, so I know nothing about snow removal, but I, uh, I can actually see the, I think it's, uh, you have to have the right kind of personality for it to really enjoy it. But it's, there is something so nice about just being on your own at night plowing snow. I, I, I've never plowed snow, but I've ridden around in snow cats before. And there is just something uh, so relaxing about all that you have to worry about is what's right in front of you because it's dark. So everything is, every, you can only see what's lit up by your machine and you're just pushing snow out of the way. There's nothing else to worry about. Now, snow plowing is a little bit more complex. You don't want to run into stuff or knock fire hydrants over, but I can understand the appeal of it at least. Yeah. And, and you know, it, a buddy of mine asked me, he said, well, why do you do that? And I said, well, it's fun. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and it's been a couple of years since I've had any, any seat time, just the timing hasn't worked out with the storms and such. And now, now that I work full time for this friend that has the snowplow business, um, I think he'd rather keep me estimating during the day. So I'm, I'm he doesn't keep me out uh, plowing snow all night. So. That's fair. I, I, <laughs> I guess with, with snow plowing too, there's immediate gratification. Oh, like, it looks awesome. Yeah, yeah, a few hours of work and the whole place is looking way different than when it, when you got there, which is probably a lot of fun. Yep. I can I, I get it. I mean, you know what? I uh, I'm joking with people. I'm in Nashville and it, you know, snows maybe one day of the year and I just got my skid steer, so I'm going to have a one day a year snowplowing business and I'm going to be the hero of the neighborhood. Like the storm the storm we got this winter, it messed the place up. It shut the whole city down. Not in my neighborhood next year. I mean, the whole place go. is going to be spotless because I am going to be cruising around with my blinky light, and my little skid steer, making sure everything is spick and span. Yeah, make, make sure so, you put your uh, put your seatbelt on so you don't go through the windshield when you hit that first uh, catch basin or uh, manhole I, cover. <laughs> Noted. Um, uh, so why 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 go to engineering school? Yeah, it's an interesting question because I mean, I I probably. I might have been happy just, you know, being an operator. Um, I guess I felt a calling towards it. And, um, you know, I liked big projects and I figured I would design them. Um, 
But when I got, got to school, I actually went to school for civil and environmental engineering because back in 1990, when I was graduating from high school, that was, you know, environmental was the thing to do. Mm-hmm. And um, I took a couple of those environmental classes and decided I had absolutely no interest in biological oxygen demand and, you know, sewage treatment and things along those lines. Um, but the construction classes that I took, you know, really, really hit a, uh, they, they really clicked for me. Um, that and the, the school, I went to Clarkson university, which is way up in the Northern part of, uh, New York state. And, uh, very lucky up there in that a lot of large companies come recruiting up there. So the Turners, the, the Kiewitz, um, Perini at the time came up and, and interviewed up there and, mm-hmm. uh, the American society of civil engineers and the associated general contractors, student chapters would typically host meetings with these company reps that were coming up to interview. And so they'd come up and they'd play a video and talk about the projects they were doing. And, you know, I I was like all ears. I said, this is, this is what I want to do. And, um, actually when you were talking to the gentleman from up in the Boston area, the, the master craftsman about the tunnels, well, that was one of the things that hooked me. Um, they had a keywood had a video of building the Baltimore Harbor tunnel. Um, it's mm. an immersed tube tunnel. I've actually I've been meaning to send you the link to that. You can find the video on, on YouTube and everything. Um, and, you know, seeing those folks come up, we had a VP by the name of uh, Bill Womack from Perini that would come up and interview people. And, you know, I, I distinctly remember, you know, this is almost 30 years ago, him saying that when he retired, he was going to drive around the country and walk up and put his hand on things that he had built or been involved with building all across the country. And, um, you know, here I am 27 years out of school and I've got stuff I can go touch from, you know, Nevada to the, to, uh, New Jersey up into, uh, Detroit, Michigan. And, uh, you know, here in the Pennsylvania area for the last, uh, 19 years or so. So there's, there's a lot there. One, uh, environmental engineering. I, I thought it was like something about, I don't know, like saving rabbits or something like that. When I first heard environmental or like planting trees or I don't, I, I had no idea. It was like, yeah, calculating flow rates and sewage treatment. And I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty intricate and complex. And and so I learned what it is and was like, I'm going to stay away from that. Cause that sounds really, really complicated. Um, if anybody listening has not seen seen immersed tube tunnels and how they're constructed, highly recommend it. Super fascinating stuff. They build this gigantic floating concrete box, seal both ends, float it out, and then sink the damn thing and connect them all together and you have a tunnel. Highly recommend it. I think the video, if you could send me that video, we'll put it in the show notes. Alex, there's your note there. So you 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 fall in love with the fact of of building things, leaving some sort of physical lasting legacy behind every year of work that you put in and you go first, what is, what is engineering school like? Pretty intense. You know, I'd like to think I was a decent student. Um, you know, a lot of physics, chemistry, calculus, um, few English classes thrown in there, every, you know, every once in a while to make sure we, we don't sound, uh, so we can sound intelligent, um, and 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 uh, be able to write and such, but um, it was it was pretty intense. You know, again, we got into statics and um, yeah, dynamic. I never never took dynamics. I never got it. I didn't do very well in thermodynamics and and uh, and uh, 
electrical science, a little too abstract for me, but, um, you know, it was a lot of work, but I loved it and, you know, got to work with a lot of my, uh, fellow students to figure those problems out and out in the, the common areas at two o'clock in the morning, trying to figure out the homework. And, um, we didn't have Google or anything like that to try to look up the answers. So we actually had to sit there and try to figure the stuff out with each other. Um, mm. but it was, uh, it, it was good. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed, uh, enjoyed my time at Clarkson. So and it's, and indirectly or directly it's, it's got me to where I am today through, um, you know, different jobs I've had and, and such. So the, uh, the problem with engineering school is Google only gets you so far like, okay, it'll get you through your introductory calculus class, but then you'll get to some concrete, like you'll get to concrete structures and the, like later in engineering, the problem is there's no right answer. Like there's like a, a realm of right answers. And so the whole class on, on the test, or at least that's how it was for us, it would be one problem. And everyone in that class would probably get a different answer. And everyone could be right with all different answers. And that's when it got really, really complicated for me because I couldn't just Google stuff and couldn't just weasel my way around anymore. I actually kind of had to figure out what was going on. But I just distinctly remember, you know, you'd be in some kind of structures class. You'd have one problem. It'd be four pages of math with no numbers in it all the way through with all your stupid little Greek letters all the way through. And then you plug your numbers in and then you hope it works. And then you figure out it doesn't work. So now it's like, oh shoot, I have like 10 minutes left. Now you're scribbling through the whole thing, trying to find the damn problem. And then you just throw a a number on there and then you go get like a 40% out of a hundred. You think you failed, but so did the rest of the class. They, everyone else also failed. So then they have to curve it to pass anybody. And then you just do that over and over and over again. Yeah, and th- thank goodness for partial credit too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it, you know, it's funny though, Aaron, one of the things that's interesting, and again, I, I graduated back in 1994. And, um, you know, as crazy as it sounds to people today, spreadsheet software was just coming out. And, you know, these kids coming out of high school today that can write formulas in Excel and whatnot, um, we didn't know how to do that. And I actually had a uh, foundations professor that made us go by, uh, it was like Lotus 1, 2, 3 or something along those lines. And he would make us do our homework on a spreadsheet. We actually had to build the spreadsheet and make the formulas work to get the right answers and, um, and turn it in on a disk. And it was back, you know, those floppy disk things. I don't know if you're familiar with those Mm. or not, but um, that's how we had to, but that's one of those skills that I picked up in college that I use every day. You know, I hardly ever use a calculator anymore because I do everything in Excel. And, um, but I think the biggest thing with all those problems and everything, they teach you how to think like an engineer. And, you know, people think that you're going to come out of college and you're going to go design, you know, a a skyscraper or, you know, a a cable stay bridge. It's not going to happen. You know, engineering school teaches you how to think like an engineer, how to approach things like an engineer. And then, you know, if you go to work for a company that designs bridges, they're going to teach you how to design bridges. And, you know, if you're going to go to work for a construction company, they're going to teach you how to do CPM scheduling and or estimating and things along those lines um but what they're looking for is you to be able to pick that stuff up and apply it and you know be productive but 
you know, you're not going to design the foundations for a, a 50 story building right out of college. Um, you might be able to, you know, check the rebar drawings after somebody tells you to, what to look for. And then you need to accept the fact that they're going to check it again after you're done it because you don't know anything just because you have a, you know, master's degree in structural engineering and no experience. Um, yeah, that's, uh, I think that's the downside of engineering. I was in construction engineering and at construction engineering, Arizona state university, they require you to do two summer internships required. The civil engineering kids were not required to do anything. And so they would go get this degree and even a master's program, but they still wouldn't understand how anything is built. Anything. Like we didn't even cover once, I don't think, in engineering school, how something is actually built. It's all the theory behind the engineering. And once I got out and I, I got started early, I got started before college in the field. If I didn't have that, it would have been... It would have been a huge struggle coming out of school because you need that context to understand. It's like, okay, I understand why the rebar is in the bottom of the column and this is how we actually build it. And okay, we're talking about you know, like reinforcing steel in a, in a concrete beam, but how, do, how the hell do you do that? I, it doesn't make any sense. But then you see it out in the field or you see a precast beam be constructed and the you know post-tensioning cables and, and all sorts of stuff like that. And you're like, okay, this actually makes a lot more sense now. Um, I just wish there was more practicality to it because there's, as far as I've seen, there's, there's very little. Well, and that, that's one of the things that was great about Clarkson. I mean, they only offered three construction classes and they were taught by, uh, an adjunct professor who was also an alumni, a great guy by the name of Spencer Thu. And, uh, he had a engineering firm, um, mainly doing a lot of quality control type work and geotechnical work. Uh, by the name of Atlantic Testing Laboratories in uh, Canton, New York. And uh, the stories he would tell, I mean, we should probably get you talking with him, Aaron. I mean, the, Spencer Thu has some amazing stories, and he would captivate that class. And, um, you know, he brought that real-world experience into the classroom. And, you know, I, we, we, we soaked it up like sponges. And, um, you know, it just... It, it lit that spark, you know, much in the way you folks are trying to do with, you know, the, the social media side of things and inspiring people to build things. I mean, he, he's one of those people that got me there, you know, along with my dad and I have uncles that earn the business and such. And yeah, but it's, uh, it's all good stuff. So you, you graduate from engineering school and you go to work for a large construction company. Just that's a little famous. Famous for their yellow pickup trucks. With I'll black hoods. That. With black hoods. With black hoods. Yes, yes. Yellow pickup trucks with black hoods that they repaint when they go to auction. Um, you ever see the picture of the I, ones that came through as black with yellow hoods? No. Yeah, they're out there. <laughs> really? Every every once in a while, something gets mixed up, even with the big boys. <laughs> I wonder who screwed that order up. I'm sure. Some intern I'm, like, ah, oh, shit. <laughs> I'm sure they still remember it. <laughs> um, so yeah, so very large construction company with yellow pickup trucks. I have also worked at that construction company. I feel like everybody else in the industry has as well. I feel like everybody is an alumni of that business at one point or another. Um, so you go there and you you build some really big stuff. Yeah, I I started off, it, well, the funny thing is that when I got my offer letter, it actually had three different potential locations. I could go to Boston, Massachusetts, Washington, D.C., 
or a little town in Nebraska. Don't want to give away who this was. Um, uh, yeah. And um, you had to accept the offer before you knew where you were going. And um, yeah. which, which is kind of interesting as a, a 22 or 23 year old kid. And, uh, but I ended up in Washington, D.C., digging subway tunnels. And I got there basically at the very beginning of the job. We were still putting construction trailers together um, and worked through the first year. It was a lot of utility relocation and, and getting things ready to go. And then mm-hmm. I was a field engineer and a quality control engineer on a 22-foot diameter um, digger shield, which is kind of like a trench box that you shove in the ground. Uh, you, you've probably seen it with a couple of your partners, uh, digger shield type mis- headers. And um, I boldly went where no man had gone before under Washington, D.C., about 85 feet below the surface. And um, it, it was wild. I mean, you couldn't get any better than it for a kid that liked to, liked to be in the dirt. Um, the, the way it worked at the time, we had a, uh, a foreman on the machine, uh, and then you also had a, um, they call them walking bosses on the machine, uh, assistant superintendent. And then you'd have an operator and this particular machine, it wasn't real fancy with the rotating cutter heads. It's basically a coffee can with both ends cut out of the ground. And you have a series of hydraulic jacks in it that push it forward and, and actually pushes precast concrete segments out the back of it. So you would Mm -hmm. push the machine into the ground about four and a half feet. And then you'd suck back the jacks, you'd build in the next piece of concrete ring, and then you repeat the process again. And there's a, a basically a very simple backhoe-type attachment in the front that rakes the dirt up into the conveyor, um, similar to a, a road header that you'd see in an underground mine. And um, you just keep on going. And it was uh, guided by, by a laser, uh, th- a laser theodolite with a, a English uh, system called a Z, I think it was a Z2000, which basically was three electronic targets that the laser would shine into. And it had a computer or a uh, alignment built into it. It was pretty high tech for back in the 90s. And uh, what was neat for me is I actually got to drive the machine. I was sitting there, I would push the levers and you know yell out, pushing. And we would go and because the operator that was on that shift, he just wanted to run the backhoe. He didn't want to be responsible for the steering and everything. So I got to drive the machine as a 24 year old kid. And, uh, you know, it's just wild stuff. That's the, uh, I guess that's the, that's the benefit of going to work for one of those major companies out of college. And I'm a huge, like leaving college, I highly recommend going to one of those big boys because like the amount of responsibility you get, it's either, well, with the civil companies, you're always going to get ridiculous responsibility. With the GC, you, and again, going on, like you might get pigeonholed into counting um, lights in a, a million square foot warehouse. Like, but, but with these big civil contractors, at least more often than not, you can get some ridiculous uh, ridiculous responsibilities very, very, very quickly. Like I was 21 and I was helping track all of our explosives consumption on the job I was working at. Like it was 50,000 pounds, a trailer full of, you know, 50,000 pounds of explosives. And there I was 21 years old, making sure all the paperwork looked good on the explosives that we were sending to the ATF. Like, and then my, my friends working in, you know, finance were checking spreadsheets and that they didn't even, 
had no idea. And they, they'd already been checked by probably three other people anyway. And, but they were just the intern. And it's, it's just cool how much, ex, how much experience, opportunity, and responsibility you can get at working at those big companies. Yeah. And, and the other thing too, and, you know, I, I did eventually leave, um, that after moving all over the country with those guys. Um, but you know, I still use the, what I learned there, you know, the, the scheduling mm-hmm. skills. And this goes back to Primavera when you had to, to draw things out on paper and assign numbers and then enter it in to the computer, as opposed to, you know, the, some of the systems we have now. And, you know, that basic ability to think things through and, you know, build those logic diagrams, um, you know, I, I still use today. And, um, but that's, you know, I learned from some of the best and, you know, learning how to construction engineer and, you know, plan projects. Um, I learned from some of the best in the business. I mean, the, 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 the concepts these guys come up with and, and ladies come up with for, you know, putting things 300 feet up in the air where there's nothing to brace it off of. And, you know, next thing they're, they're coming up with, oh, we could put a beam in that would do this and we'll hang it with some, you know, Dewey dag rod. And it's amazing what these people come up with. And, and that's that challenge of taking that original design and teaching, figuring out the, the scheme with the field input to actually make it three-dimensional up there and stay there. The, and I guess the, you know, that's, that's another benefit of going, going to work for a really big contractor when you're young is a win-win either way. Cause you either go learn from the best and see the coolest projects in the United States built in the most effective manners possible. Like the company we're talking about still the most impressive contractor I've ever seen to date. Like just, they come in and they do not, for lack of a better term, fuck around. They just blow and go and just knock stuff out. It's remarkable what they're capable of. So you either you either get all that experience and then you say, hmm, I have wife and kids now. I can't do this anymore. I can't just pick up my life and leave whenever you ask me to. So I'm going to go work for a smaller contractor. But now you have all that brilliant experience to take with you. Makes you super valuable to a smaller contractor. And you can just stay put or you can stay there your whole career if that's your cup of tea and you can make a ridiculous amount of money and you can work on some ridiculous projects your entire career and you can become, you know, Mr. Project Executive or District Manager, whatever it is, and have a pretty damn good life. So it's kind of, it's kind of a win-win on, on both sides of the spectrum there. Yeah. I, I, I would highly encourage an, any person coming out of school to, to go work for one of those contractors because you know, it was an awesome experience for me. And yeah, I, I think I mentioned when, in one of my emails to Alex, you know, at the time, I was going to be the president of that company before I retired. That's what yeah. I was going to do. You cut me open and I would bleed the same color as those trucks. And um, yeah, I, frankly, I, being in DC, I didn't know anybody. I didn't have anything better to do. So I didn't care that I was working 60 hours a week. And, you know, I, I came in half day on Saturday. I didn't have any other place to be. And, um, and, but I didn't know any better either. Um, but at the same time, it's part of putting your dues in. And you know, that, that's my one concern I, I hear. Uh, and again, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying people should be working 80 hours a week. There's, there's enough burnout in this industry. There's enough you know, mental challenges in this industry. And, you know, but at the same time, 
you still need to earn your wings. You know, you, you got to mm-hmm. get the dirt on your boots and, you know, go after those experiences and, you know, thinking you're going to come in at nine and go home at five when you're working for a contractor probably isn't, uh, and I, I haven't come across many places like that in my, in my time. No. And you know, we, we've talked about on the podcast, it, it, it's somewhat problematic the, the hours that we require as an industry, but at the same time, you know, the most memorable days you've worked are probably not the days where you, you know, you show up at eight, you go home at five, everything went great. No, it's, it's I, like, I was just joking with a friend of mine this morning about the time we, you know, busted a water main. He's like, sent me a picture, you know, joking about how excavators are great finding water on uh <laughs> Friday afternoons. And I'm like, yeah, I've been there. Send him a picture of a busted water main we had, which just the road just flooded all over, you know, on a, on a Friday afternoon, you're sitting there and you're like, son of a bitch. But that's the stuff you're talking about with your friends years and years later. And without those struggles, it's, um, yeah, it, it, life's just a little less exciting when you haven't overcome obstacles and adversity and, and really, you just put your head down and, and, and worked. It's, there's so much value in it. Yeah. Well, and you know, there's been times in my career when I've been busy for 18 hours a day or, you know, I've had to put in the time. Um, there's been times when I've been bored for eight hours, mm-hmm. being bored for eight hours, wondering what you're going to do next, especially before the internet. Um, that's no fun. Um, you know, and I, you know, somewhere there's a happy medium where, you know, you're busy, you're productive, you're contributing for 10 hours. Okay. I can do that day in and day out. But part of it is I've built that callus from, you know, the the 60 hour weeks so that the the 50 hour weeks, they don't even bother you anymore. And if you got to do a 70, you do a 70. That's just part of getting it done. It, it is, uh, it is funny though. I, I worked in estimating office doing takeoffs and, you know, for a heavy civil contractor doing takeoffs, is not always the most stimulating uh, ex- experience. You know, you're, you're sitting there for eight hours in a chair, looking at a computer screen, counting curb and gutter for eight hours and making sure you're not even really doing anything. You're just making sure your number actually adds up to what the engineer said. So you're just, if everything goes well, you're just like, yeah, it looks good. And the estimator's like, okay, good. And that's that's your job. And then the estimator goes and bids it and probably loses the bid. And you're like, sick. That was so worthwhile. But I uh like an eight hour eight hour shift doing takeoffs was way longer than 15, 16 hours busting mass in the field. It seemed like it was so many times longer. Then even, you know, the, the hardest of days out in the field, just because there's I I don't, I don't know what it is, but there's just something different mentally about busting your ass, working long hours. Yeah. And, and at the same time, and I do a lot of takeoff now, you know, even as a, a senior estimator, I would. They're necessary. Oh yeah. I'm not saying they're not necessary, but. Well, and, and what's interesting for me is that um, I, I work for a company that does predominantly private work. So it's a lot of negotiations. It's a lot of client relationships, and you know we may not always be the lowest price, um, but knowing the job when you talk to the client, you know I'm looking at a project now, and you know I could tell the client that you know unit 169, 
doesn't have a sewer lateral or sewer lateral connection shown on it. Oh, and uh, yeah, if you look a couple doors down, they, the the designer missed putting the stairs on that that townhouse, and um, that's how I keep myself stimulated when I'm doing takeoff is getting to know the job, finding all those details. Um, I take a lot of pride in finding mistakes. Um, mm-hmm. and, and again, I have complete respect for the people that start with the blank piece of paper, but if they miss something, I'm not afraid to, uh, make sure that we catch it before it messes my guys up in the field. Um, and, and I've actually had a lot of fun with it too, in that the, the takeoff tools have changed so much since I got into it. Um, we do a lot, I use uh, blue beam review a lot and, um, oh. I've actually had a lot of fun on on LinkedIn building a community or building relationships with people that um, you know we're we're professional blue beam people, if you will, and um, you know similar to the way you would see with ag tech or something along those lines, and trying to figure out you know all right well how can I do this more efficiently um, to the point where for example my, the people I work with when I started there um, and and my boss works this way it's how he's comfortable he'll take something off electronically he writes it on a yellow pad and then he adds it up with a calculator and then he goes into bid to win and enters it Mm -hmm. well for me i click a a custom tool that i have built for curb for example click 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 go around the drawing and then once i have my takeoff done i export it out of uh, review and then i manipulate it in excel that goes back to that Excel or the uh, professor that taught us to do spreadsheets. And then I have it set up where I can upload it into bid to win. And so I'm trying to fix those or improve those workflows. And so that's the challenge that I'm engineering now is how to make those systems better. No different than, you know, those guys with the yellow trucks will try to figure out a way to save a 10th of a man hour, you know, moving dirt. Well, for me, my challenge now is, get through as many estimates as I can as, as thoroughly as I can. So I'm protecting the company by not missing something and then, you know, trying to do it as efficiently as possible and then trying to teach other people, you know, those, those techniques, um, you know, with my coworkers. And again, this, this, this whole community on, uh, it's a, a site by the name of uh, U chapter two and it's all Bluebeam stuff. They have a group that's called the brainery. And, you know, we, we bounce ideas off of each other and it's almost like working for the company with, you know, 15 people that are all doing blue beam. In the meantime, there's only one, there's only one of me, but I can, you know, post up a question of, you know, Hey, how do you guys do this? And, you know, Liz Larson will jump in with something on how she does it. And, you know, Andrew Vegan will jump in with something that he does it. And it's like having those people at your fingertips. It's like a huge network. Now, you know, no different than you folks are building with your partners. And, you know, you know, does is um, Herb Sargent calling, you know, one of the other guys and, and saying, hey, how do you guys do this? And, you know, yeah. bouncing ideas off of each other. We're just doing it at a little lower level. But it's, um, you know, it's, it's a, I, I used to joke that I try to save clicks. And, but that's, you know, to a certain extent, that's what I do, because if I can say, figure out a way to save, you know, 10 or 15 clicks and do it in two or take the risk of an error out by transferring something electronically as instead of having to rekey it, you know, I'm just making my, my, uh, estimates that much better. That, that is the amazing thing about the internet is the ability to connect with people so quickly and easily. Like speaking of Herb Sargent, like he, he texted me 
earlier this week, hey, there's this project, there's this opportunity in the state for this project. Can you send me this guy's information? Because I know they do work out there. We're not going to go out there. This is a good opportunity. Yep, sure. Here you go. Done. And or a, a contractor reached out to me this morning. Uh, hey, we're, we're, we have the ability to do X kind of work, but we're really struggling to get into this market. It's, it's a really tough market to get into and we're, we're just striking out. Do you have any advice for us? Oh, well, I don't know anything, but I know a guy that actually just did this on the opposite coast. So I'm going to text him and ask, boom, there's your answer. Done. It's, it's crazy how quickly you can pass information back and forth between people using the internet. And yet, despite how amazing it is, a lot of people in this world don't take advantage of it and share information with one another. Yeah. And it's actually kind of interesting because, you know, I was never on LinkedIn through my first three jobs. It didn't exist when I went for my first one, but um, it, it actually took me coming in on a Monday morning and getting laid off for me to get onto LinkedIn. Uh, because you know that was for a site for people that wanted to find jobs, and I didn't want to find a job. I had a job. I, I loved what I was going to yeah. be. I was going to be the president there too, but um, they they laid so me off the, before you were I had that be the chance. President everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, I, I've actually decided that really isn't my goal anymore. But um, fair. It's uh, they actually used a, a. They were great to us. Uh, you know, they were great to us while we worked there, and they were good to us as they showed us the door. They they actually set us up with an outplacement firm. And that was one of the first things that this consultant said to me was, you know, you need to be on LinkedIn. And so the, the, the picture that's on my LinkedIn profile is actually a picture that my wife took as I was going out for a, an interview uh, with a competitor of the company that had previously laid me off. And uh, I got that job. They were thrilled to have me. And yeah, that was that was a nice ego boost when uh, a couple of weeks after somebody shows you the door, somebody else puts out a hand and says, "Yeah, we'd love to have you. Come on in." And mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it didn't happen because of LinkedIn, but I've that got me started on it, and uh, I, I've really actually probably been more active in the last year or two, or last in the last year. Um, and it's it's neat. I, I have a different perspective on it now. Is uh, I'm getting more out of it, and you know learning from people, you know, people that I've gotten connected through some of the comments that I've made on, on your posts and such. Um, I don't post a lot. I'm not on Instagram and, you know, I don't have a Facebook account and stuff like that, but you know, I interact with people on LinkedIn and, you know, I get a lot out of it. I'm, I've said it before. I'll say it again. I'm a huge fan of LinkedIn and especially for the dirt world. I think it's so applicable and I've met so many wonderful people, wonderful people through it. Um, I guess going back to the estimating takeoff world, we didn't really explain for those that don't, what, what is a takeoff? So you explain in layman terms. So a takeoff is, um, for, for layman's terms, if you, if you think of a recipe for baking a cake, you, you know, you need two cups of flour, a cup of sugar, three eggs, whatever. It's cause, cause you have that whole list of ingredients. If you think of a site project, you need to know, you know, how many feet of curb do you have? How many square yards of asphalt? How many tons of stone? Lineal feet of pipe, of sewer? St- what size uh, storm sewer? How many manholes do I need? So a takeoff is basically deconstructing the job, breaking it down into the components so that you can make sure you've accounted for the cost of all those components and then for the, the time to put all those components into the ground. 
So it's, it's really the start of an estimate is um, ba- basically deconstructing the job and you know, gathering the, the list of things you need. Um, so it's, it's, the, it's the grassroots of any estimate is that takeoff. Well, why can't you just trust the numbers the engineers give you? That's a very good question, Aaron. Um, it, because they do, they do give you the list of ingredients sometimes, not every time. Sometimes. Typically on a DOT type job, they will, but on a DOT, private yes. jobs, you don't. Um, yeah. I'll let you in on a little secret about the engineering profession, Aaron. They make mistakes. Uh-huh. And uh, they don't like to admit it. And it, sometimes if you ask them a question and you point out the mistakes, they'll try to tell you that it's not a mistake, but it's still a mistake. Um, and <laughs> I used, used to have, a, in, in my DOT estimating days, I, I would have a little unwritten competition to see who could ask the most uh, pre-bid questions. Um, there's, there's a couple of myself and a couple other contractors that were, were known for asking questions because we weren't afraid to. And we wanted to, you know, frankly, we wanted to make sure that everybody was on the same playing field. And, um, you know, if I saw a problem, I wanted to make sure everybody knew about it. And, you know, even I, I spent some time working for an engineering company and um, looking at drawings before they went to bid and, um, you know, doing, they call them constructability reviews. And uh, that was awesome work. You know, if I could do constructability reviews all day, just you know, have a have uh, the the red marker out on uh, on Bluebeam and highlight plans all day of all the problems that were with them, that that might be a pretty darn good living. Um, yeah. But you know, but in in that case, I'm on the 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 owner's side, and I'm trying to protect the owner by making sure that things are as correct as they could be before they go out to bid. Um, you know, because sometimes just because it says it in the standard doesn't mean it's the right way to do it. Um, you know, I, I looked at one job that had, um, they had to build a temporary embankment on a, on the face of a dam to, um, build a temporary alignment to be able to rebuild the bridge over the spillway. And, um, the designers were insistent that you were going to make this embankment out of three eighths inch clean stone. And mm. I got into heated debates with these people I literally thought I was going to have to take a five-gallon bucket of, of pea stone and dump it on their conference room table and jump up and down on it to show them it wasn't going to work. You cannot make an embankment out of 60 feet of clean, tiny stone because it's just going to slide off. And Yeah, like the, uh, the, ma- the man who built his house on sand. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And you know, I like to think that I helped... That uh, I mean, I'm calling him out on it on a national podcast now, but I helped that engineer advertise a better project because he didn't have to answer those questions in public um, when the contractors started asking. And, and I also protected the Department of Transportation in that they didn't get hit with a huge change order after the bid that someone said, well, you can't do it with that. You need to have this other stone. It's going to cost you more. Well, by getting that cleaned up before it went out to bid, they bid a better project, um, you know, based on my looking at their plans and coming up with, you know, the issue ahead of time. It's just, it's so funny how like that, that should always be the goal is let's just build the best project possible. And, and, and yet sometimes the need to be right gets in the way of that, which is unfortunate, but 
10 times out of 10 times, the best projects I've seen are the ones where the contractors involved early on and the engineers are working together with them and the owners involved heavily and the inspectors are involved and everybody, all the stakeholders are involved. And that's why not, well, alternative delivery isn't perfect. I think that's why it's getting more and more popular is because it's, you know, largely around this concept of let's get everybody involved from the beginning so that we can build a more effective project here because this whole just low bid, just put it out into the marketplace, take whoever's the lowest is maybe not the best way to do things. Yeah, I, I worked on one design build um, proposal for a bridge down in D.C., and um, I was doing the utility work on it, and we weren't selected. Um, and another contractor uh, or another joint venture got the job. And um, it was an interesting process because they were trying to figure out, okay, well, how many inlets can you eliminate to so that we can, you know, give them the lowest price and still accomplish the scope? It was kind of interesting. Um, but then to drive down through there years later when the project was done and see what the other team came up with. It just blew my mind. It's like, well, we had no idea of that concept, or how'd they come up with that? Mm. And you know, yeah. th- that that was pretty wild. Um, at the other time, you know, the one of the projects I did with the when I had a yellow truck, um, we did this uh, design little design build fiber optic project for level three communications, and um, we we ended up building about sixteen thousand miles of fiber optic backbone across the the country, and. Um, it was a design build job. And so we helped through that process. And, you know, we'd like to think that we helped keep their costs down and everything. Um, but it was, it was kind of neat to be on that side of things. I, I didn't start with a complete blank sheet of paper. This one actually had uh, some photogrammetry that established where the railroad tracks were. But, you know, it, it, was, it was as close as I've come from that, that blank sheet of paper on that project. Explain the design build process. Um, I don't know if we've got too much into that. It, it, how does that work? Well, I, I haven't done a lot of it. I'll, I'll, I'll preface it by saying that. Um, yeah. And Alex, if you need to edit this part out because of it, that's okay with me. Um, the design build process is when a contractor usually is teamed with a designer um, and you find out what the goals of the project are, What the or, or they would typically the DOT is where you see it as a DOT type arrangement or where I have. Um, for either a highway widening or maybe a bridge or a series of bridges. Um, Pennsylvania just got done doing a, a big, um, they call it a public-private partnership that replaced 500 bridges yeah. in three years, I think it was. And um, so basically, you make your proposal to the DOT um, and you sell them on your idea. So what, 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 what are your concepts? And it, it still has a price component of it. But basically, it's more about what your plan is, and but you don't have the drawings. Uh, you, you have a map that says, okay, these are the 500 bridges we want to replace. And you, you might have a plan view and an elevation view, but that's it. And it gives you, you know, basic lengths that have to be accomplished um, and basic alignment type things. But then you have to team with someone to design the better bridge, the, you know, the proverbial better mousetrap. And figure out how to get the, you know, the, the most bridges for the, the budget that they have. And then um, you work with the designers. You have a design partner to, that um, 
works with you to come up with those details and you try to come up with the most efficient details. Um, what allows you to be most repetitive, you know, can you set it up where the forms are the same on every bridge or on 10 bridges? Um, or the beams are all the same size so that the precaster can build you bridge, you know, beams for 15 bridges without having to uh, change the, the forms. Um, and yeah. that might make mean that one bridge is five feet longer than it needs to be. Or it might mean that you have to get a little bit more creative to make another bridge five feet shorter. But you've built that um, commodity beam, if you will, at that point. That's what the railroad does. If you look at railroad bridges, typically smaller railroad bridges, they're all the same exact same precast um, type panels that they use same H piles all identical and they just you know depends depends what the size of the bridge is is needed and that's how many they order and they ship them out on rail and plop them down and we're good to go Um, and and they're probably sized so they fit on a rail car it probably has has as much as anything to do is what can you put on a rail car and how big can that that crane that rail mounted crane handle to get it out there um, Correct. Yeah, it's very slick. Yeah, um, yeah it, it's um, it, just one of the most fascinating things about construction. I had a professor actually explain this to me before I really understood it was it's really the only industry that is reverse of anything else. It's like, you know, Apple, okay, we're going to go build an iPhone. We're going to figure out everything that goes into this thing. We're going to figure out our supply chain. We're going to figure out the materials. We're going to figure out, okay, add it all up. How much does that cost? And then based on how much it costs, then we're going to go sell it for that. Whereas construction industry is complete opposite. It's, okay, we want this iPhone. Here it is. Here's the plans. Here's the finished product. You guys figure out how to do it. And you guys figure out how much it's going to cost. And then tell it to us. And then we're going to take whoever's the lowest one. And it's just... uh, it, it, there's, you know, there's there's no room for creativity on one side of the spectrum because it's like the government wants this road. You can't tell them, nah, you know, we're going to actually give you this road. It's like, no, 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 this is what we want. But there's total creative freedom on the other side of how to actually build that road. And two contractors could do it two completely different ways with two completely different types of equipment and crews and schedules, everything about it can be different. And yet they're getting to the same point, um, which I find so fascinating. And that's why every project I go to is completely different. And then, okay, you work in Pennsylvania. Awesome. But come down to Tennessee, you're going to have totally different ground conditions, totally different weather, totally different material suppliers, totally different labor constraints. Everything is a different playing field. So just the variety in this industry is so much fun to, to work through, uh, especially from like an estimating management standpoint. Yeah. Well, and another good example of that, and I, I worked with another company that actually had black trucks um, and uh-huh. uh, here yeah. in the Pennsylvania area. And yeah, yeah, I, I worked, yeah. don't know who that is. Worked with, um, yeah. you know, again, some amazing people there and, um, you know, great estimators, but, you know, they came up with a concept <laughs> that worked. and. Um, but when we went to actually build it, we went out and 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 met with um, the precast supplier that was supplying the beams, and we're starting to look at it. We're looking at the crane placement, and it's like this isn't going to work. And you know the the elevations didn't work to do what we we call a, use a slide beam. And 
I'm standing there with the superintendent and the, the gentleman from the precaster. And I said, well, what if we put it down here? And they're looking at me and they're like, look, start looking around the site. And it's like, yeah, that could work. And, you know, by putting the three of us together there and, you know, knowing the tools and what was possible and with the three of us putting our head together, we came up with an awesome plan that nobody had ever done it that way before. And, mm. you know, somebody else may have engineered, engineered a completely different approach. You know, we came from the left bank and maybe somebody else would have come from the right, but you know, that's what makes it fun. Yeah. Now say I am a young superintendent out in the field building something. I'm looking at my plans and I recognize, Hmm, this is probably the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life, which is total over-exaggeration, but that's, that's what they'll say every single time. This is the stupidest thing I've ever seen. And it'll be like, you know, some, some error uh, that's preventing them from actually building what they need to build because of the engineer. What is the most productive way to handle that situation? The, the best thing to do, and a lot of it depends on how your company staffs the projects and such, but um, you know, bring it to people's attention and, and bring it to them early. Um, you know, the day before the beams getting set is not the day to figure out that you got the wrong bearings. You know, if something isn't going to work based on your experience, speak up early, um, because that makes all of us look better as an industry if we get ahead of these things. You know, and get projects done on time. You know, nobody wants to be the big dig that comes in and at double budget or triple budget and takes ten years longer. You know, we all want to get done on time or, or early, and and we want to come in under budget, and, and that takes everybody. And you know, a superintendent, um, young superintendent, a, a foreman, you know, an operator. I, I got a. We have a great blade hand that was looking at the way the GPS was telling him to grade a parking lot. And he said, you know, this doesn't make any sense. You know, the, the, the flow line is putting the water over here. This inlet's never going to see any water. And mm-hmm. he mentioned it to his, his, his um, super, site superintendent who brought it to my attention. I looked at it and I said, you know, you're exactly right. You know, water flows at 90 degrees to the, to the contours and the water is going completely away from the inlet. And we were able to go to the engineer and point it out to him. We got it adjusted and we could correct that. Um, we won't get into what the surveyor did with it after the fact, but, um, but you know, that guy at the, at, in that D six identified the problem. He brought it to us and that makes our whole team look better with the client because it's not the client coming back to us saying, you know, why isn't there any water going to that inlet? It's all going around it. We went to him ahead of time and said, Hey, this isn't going to work, but you know, you could do this, this, and this to fix it. And, you know, we all look better at that point. And it's such an important point that everybody's on the same damn team here. Everybody, like everybody involved in a project is on the same team. We all want the same thing. We all want a successful project. That's it. The owner, the, 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 the people that live there, the construction company, the engineers, the surveyors, everybody just wants a successful project. And Whatever you can do to help make that happen, even if it, even if it short term hurts you, is always worthwhile long term. I'll remember. I, I always remember um, a guy Chad Hughes of Hughes Brothers Construction down in Orlando. They got their first major break because 
it was like a few million dollar job or something like that. And they thought that they had to export all of this garbage material that another contractor had left behind on the job. They found out that this contractor buried all sorts of absolute garbage that they should have hauled off. And it's just a total disaster. We're going to have to haul it all off and haul it back in. Okay, great. So price it. Here's your money. Go make it happen. They Instead, they screened all the material. And so they didn't have to haul off a majority of it and saved a ton of money. Now, that wasn't... uh, They could have just taken that money and said, man, we just made a killing on this job. Good for us because we figured out a better way to do it and that's our money. But instead they went back to the owner and they said, hey, we found a better way to do this. You're way overpaid. So here's your money back. And because of that, they've been doing that owner's, you know, that owner's one of the largest developers in Florida. And they've been doing all their work since because of that one opportunity and that one chance to do the right thing, even though it wasn't in their best interest. And I think that's, a, that's an important thing to note too is, Every single time a contractor does that, they end up better off as a result. Yeah. Well, and the the folks I work for now had a similar experience to that. Um, and the funny thing is, I, I met it sounds crazy one of my in laws' neighbors at a at a uh, Groundhog Day party. And um, yes, the, we do have these things in Pennsylvania. And just Pennsylvania things. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I found out he was a developer. And, you know, I said, well, and I said, well, you, you, you ought to be talking to these guys at Benchmark. And he says, oh, yeah, they do, all my, they do a lot of my work. And I said, oh, that's great. And he said, yeah, they, uh, we had a problem with some ENS things on a project, and um, they made it right. And, you know, they, we do a lot of that company's work, and a lot of it goes back to that job where, you know, the ownership of my company you know, whether we were right or wrong, they stood up and made it right. And, um, you know, we are, we're, we're reaping the rewards of, of that relationship, um, because we did the right thing. And, um, that's one of the things I like about working where I work is that, you know, we do the right thing and get things done for our clients and we have a lot of repeat business and that's, that's a great place to be. You'd think that makes sense, but it, I just don't always see it that way. And especially, you know, I was driving through, I'm, gonna, I'm an unnamed state on the West Coast, a very large state on the West Coast. And they're building a new method of transportation, a high-speed train. Sounds awesome. Sounds really, really cool. Like the, you, they'll put the stats up there. You're like, holy smokes, I can go from here to here and not time at all. I don't have to get on an airplane. This is sweet. But then you start looking into it more and more. And you're like, they don't have a majority of the right of way. Cost overruns are completely, ins- like it's, it's a total, it really, really, really frustrates me. But yet the contractor is still kind of like, and not saying they're at fault, but at the same time, they're just like, this is kind of working well for us either way. Like it doesn't, I don't know. It doesn't really need to work for us to make out pretty good here. I've seen that with, with, with some projects. It's just like, and maybe maybe I'm completely misunderstanding it, but I'm just looking at them like, okay, they're spending tens and tens and tens of billions of dollars on this thing that might probably probably isn't even going to work or isn't going to work anytime soon. Is 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 no one sitting there saying maybe we shouldn't do this? It just uh, I don't know. That's a that's a can of worms. But that was something that frustrated me recently that I got all fired up about. Yeah, that 
history is full of those and it will, we will, we will continue to make those mistakes for, for decades and decades to come. Um, it's, you know, sometimes you got to try something to figure out it doesn't work. Um, and you know, unfortunately I doubt I will ever take a high speed train to work because chances are, it's not going to be going where I need it to go. You know, I, I, Probably. Especially building things, yeah. it's very very rare that you have a have trains that will get you to where you need to build something at the time you need to be there or be available when you need to go home. And um, you know, I I wonder about some of those things. And you know, everyone says, "Oh, well, Europe has this," and hopefully the the the, the seventh guy from Europe that listens um, will probably flame me for that. But you know, it's, it's a different world over there. They have a different yeah. Uh, you've traveled over there more than I have. Um, I haven't really, but what my understanding is, everything is closer together. So okay, maybe it makes more sense to have the rail. Um, but you know, there's p- places in this country. My daughter has a friend in South Carolina. She's never ridden on a train. You know, I happen to mm-hmm. live someplace where I can, in three minutes, I can be from my my de- my kitchen table to a train that'll take me into Center City, Philadelphia. Do I use it? No. It's not where I'm going, but um, no. you know, it, there's a there's a lot of things that people. Oh, this is the future. This is the future. It's a big darn country to put high speed rail all over the country. I just don't see it happen. Well, it's a uh, see. So I've been on high speed rail in China, which is so cool. So it, it's crazy how fast it goes. It's so easy. It's cheap. You're like, this is the coolest thing ever. But also, China can just say, hey, hey, guys, we're going to build a high-speed rail line right here. Oh, you we have problems with that? Tough. We're, we're going to build it. In the United States, it doesn't work that way. If some farmer says, nah, you're not building a high-speed rail here, they can say, okay, good. You know what? We're just going to claim imminent domain. And he says, okay, great. I'm just going to take you to court, and I'm just going to drag it out, and I'm just going to drag it for 20 years. And then, so you can build this whole thing and you still have a hole and a train doesn't work very well if there's a hole in the middle of, in the middle of it. And back in the day, and again, I'm going down such a rabbit hole right now, <laughs> but I'm so fired up about this. Back in the day when we created the rail network in the United States, the government just took the land and said, okay, railroad, this is now your land because no one was there because it was hundreds of years ago. You can't do that nowadays. Right. Well, and and yet you still have contractors building it because it's like, well, if we don't do it, someone else is going to do it, and it's billions of dollars. Might as well. Not our problem if it's going to work or not. Yeah. Well, and like I said, there there are roads to nowhere all over the country. Um, here, yeah. here in in the greater Philadelphia area, we have a, a kind of a loop road that goes to the west of Philadelphia. It's called the Blue Route. And it's called the Blue Route because at some public meeting, somebody had a map with different alignments, and one was green, and one was blue, and one was red, and eventually the Blue Route was what was chosen, and the name has stuck. And this goes back to the 70s. But one of the things that's interesting is one part of the area um, was really fighting the road. They didn't want it in their backyard. And as I understand it, there was some kind of a political um, agreement that, okay, well, we'll only make it two lanes in this area. The next county up, it's three lanes. 
But in this this county, because we're concerned, it's going to bring so much more traffic to the area. We're only going to make it two lanes through here, and you know it's retaining walls and noise walls, and you know there's really no place to widen this road if you wanted to because of the way it was designed to minimize the impact. I tell you this, Aaron. People that are are descendants of those people that made that decision sit in traffic on that road every morning, and they sit in traffic on that road every night because yeah. nobody wanted to listen to the engineers that said it should have been three lanes. And, and the traffic would probably yeah. still be there, but it would be better than it is. And you know, there's other a lot. There's a place up in Boston. If you look on the maps, you can actually see where Interstate 95 was supposed to go right up into Boston. And the state of Massachusetts bought the right of way. They tore down the road ho- row houses through South Boston to build that alignment. And then it got stopped in court. And so there's actually a green mm-hmm. belt through there um, that they've built gardens in it and things like that because everybody said, no, we don't want to have that traffic. And you know, now they live with it. Um, so. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm fixated on the one of the few projects that might not work. but. Ten, uh, almost 10 times out of 10 times, infrastructure is nothing but a fantastic thing for everybody involved. And it's such a shame that it gets caught up in a lot of the bureaucracy. I Like the largest highway project to date in the state of Arizona, my home state, it was approved in the 90s and they just finished it like a year ago. And because they, they, they were going to put it on some land and then they said, you're not putting it on our land. Hell no. And then they had to end up punching it through the mountain, which was like millions and millions and millions of yards of rock excavation that they didn't need to do, but they had to do to keep it off the land for the the sake of the proper alignment. And it took them 20 years to figure that out before they could actually build it. And now everybody's better off as a result, or most almost everybody's better off as a result, because now you can access that entire part of the city way faster and way easier, but it's just held up. Uh, yeah, it, it's it'll be interesting to see. I know, you know, in the government right now, there's a lot of talk about infrastructure spending and trillions more dollars on the table that they are going to pull from out of the couch cushions at the White House and, and hand out to construction companies, which I'm very excited about because I think everybody benefits as a result. But it, it'll just be interested to see what projects actually happen as a result. Yeah, well, and that's one thing that's interesting with this Blue Route. And I, I have a picture someplace. I'll have to see if I can find it and send it to you. Um, the Pennsylvania DOT has a, a plaque on their wall or a bulletin board that has the program from the, the ribbon cutting in the uh, early 90s for this final section of the highway. And I think the it said something along the lines of the original I need for this route was established like in 1910 or something like that. And it finally was opened in in the early 90s. The first sections of it were built in the 60s. And it never got used because it was literally a road to nowhere. And I I think I've even heard, you know, and some of it may be urban legend, that they actually had to take the pavement up and repave it before they could open it because the road had gone bad. (laughs) Um, Because it it was never completed. And, um, you know, that that kind of stuff is frustrating because... Well, and, and this doesn't even get into the broken stuff. Like if you want to talk about ASCE and, and if you want to like look up their you know report card on infrastructure every year or whatever it is and how many deficient bridges we have in the United States and, and the infrastructure that we need to replace, 
it's it's pretty crazy how much work there is to do. I mean, it's in the trillions of dollars of work to just get infrastructure to a sustainable place, not and adding anything new, but just cleaning up what already exists. Yeah, de- de- deferred and maintenance is a major issue, and yeah, Pennsylvania made some crazy. nice strides with this this P three program, but there's still a lot out there that needs to be done, and you know, and that you know loops us right back to to what you folks are trying to do, and and you know, bringing more people into the trades and stuff like that. We need them all. I mean, we need operators, we need yeah. laborers, carpenters, you know, iron workers engineers, you know, superintendents, and, and we need the bio- biologists that are going to go out there and figure out where the turtles are to make sure that we can do mm-hmm. it without destroying the world. Um, you know, that's, all those people are going to be needed and um, we, we've all got a place at the table and you know, we've all got to be there if we're going to have a, you know, succeed at it. And that's what is a little scary, but also mostly exciting, is this industry is not going away anytime soon. No, there's there's uh, there's job security in the uh, in this industry for you know as long as you want. Um, I, I mentioned to you when we were talking earlier. I've been at Scout Camp this week with my daughters, and uh, I had the opportunity to to float down a, a section of the Octorero Creek in a kayak uh, with with my older daughter and the, the camp counselor and a couple other of the of the scouts. And um, this young man was telling me he's in a program up in New York City, uh, some kind of a high school program, where he's he's training to be an underwater welder. And um, <sighs> you know, it just blew my mind that here I am sitting next to a kid that's got so much so much forethought that he's identified that that's what he wants to do. And um, I was mentioning the 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 podcast with Nick and and making sure that uh, I'm going to make sure I get his contact information and you know try to build that interest that this young man has. Um, but you yeah. know, that just blew me away that there's, and it's awesome that those programs are out there because that, that young man will never ever miss a day of work in his life um, because of, of lack of work. And, and you know, people don't realize that my college education, one of the best things I ever did. You know, I may not be sitting here talking to you t- today, Aaron, if I hadn't done it, that's the way my path worked out. But, you know, if something happened tomorrow and I had to go pull levers or push a, you know, push a D1 around to, to feed my family, that's what I'll do. Um, but, you know, the engineering thing, it's, it's worked out pretty well for me. It's a, a very necessary part of building things. And you don't, apart from like a dirt bike track, like Mr. Jared McNeil or Marty Liam build, everything else needs a set of plans attached to it. Everything else needs a little thought as far as, all right, if we push the dirt over there, where's the water going to go? Or, hey, if we use this material, what's going to happen if we put something on top of it? And, um, you know, that's, that's stuff that people that build stuff oftentimes don't want to think about, but someone needs to think about it or else you're going to build something that doesn't work and who wants to do that? Yeah. Well, one of the superintendents that I learned a lot from, the, the company with the black trucks as opposed to the company with the yellow trucks. Uh, mm-hmm. superintendent with his, his, said his first two questions were, where does the water go and how do we get paid? And that was what he always went to his field engineers with, you know, where's the water going to go? And as we do these stage as the staged construction and how do we get paid? And, you know, mm-hmm. that's where I think a, a strong field engineer working with a strong superintendent, they're unstoppable. You know, it, it's, yeah. it, it's almost like a, you know, it's, you, you can come up with, 
similarities or you know parallels in sports and whatever all day long but you know we all bring something different to the game and you know it's what gets it done we're all on the same team we're all just trying to build stuff it's 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 a good game yeah it's treated me okay so far i i have no complaints i i really appreciate you stopping by today after uh, a week at camp thank you i appreciate that and uh, i'm looking forward to uh coming down and and uh, and seeing the office at some point when it when it opens up and uh very much looking forward to seeing the uh, conference table good we'll get we'll get you down here soon enough almost done so close (laughs) so close so um mr david i appreciate you stopping by and uh we'll be talking soon thank you aaron i appreciate the opportunity to uh catch up with you and appreciate your time on a saturday afternoon dirt talk is hosted by aaron witt and produced by me, Alex Horton. To connect with other people who listen to this show, use and search for the hashtag BetterDirtWorld and join in on the conversation. If you have questions, comments, or concerns, reach out to dirttalk at buildwit.com. Stay dirty. Stay dirty.